Well, hey everybody, welcome again to Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, my name is John, I'll be your host tonight. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And I just wanna thank you so much for being here. I feel like this is just family time. We're able to just relax a little bit. Uh, the service is a little more, uh, I guess, uh, not as formal as our normal services. And uh, we can just worship. Uh, our prayer for you is that you're able to worship without distraction, that you're actually able to fully engage with uh, the worship and the study. And just a couple things that I wanted you to know about. So first of all, the study tonight, as always, is uh, interactive. It doesn't really work unless you're kind of paying attention and asking questions so that we can answer those questions. So uh, as the study gets into um, the book of Acts, at the very end, We'll, uh, we'll take your questions, and so if you submit those through the, through the chat and the live stream, or you can email those to us at onlinepastor at wateroflifecc.org. That's onlinepastor at wateroflifecc.org, and we'll get those questions, and we'll do our best to answer them. Uh, it'll be a great time together, be able to interact over God's word, almost like a really, really big small group. And so uh, it'll be a lot of fun, especially if you participate. Also want to remind you, as always, uh, we have updates all the time on our wallupdates.com page. That's wolupdates.com. If you're looking for uh, any kind of uh, curriculum for your kids all the way up through high school, if you're looking for other information about what's happening in the church, all our campuses as they're reopening, uh, that's the place to go, and you can check that out. We put stuff up there, all, on, up on there all the time, giving updates about what's happening. So before we head into worship tonight, I want to read a passage of scripture for you that I thought was uh, appropriate for uh, us as we get our hearts ready for worship. So this comes out of one of my favorite passages in Isaiah chapter 40. Um, it starts off in verse 26. It says, look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. Oh, Jacob, how can you say the Lord doesn't see your troubles? O oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard, have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They'll soar high on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. Today, Lord, we come to you as the one who is not just that personal friend or that personal savior, but God, we come to you as the one who created all of the stars and who knows each one of them by name. God, we, we come to you as a father who sees each one of our troubles, each one of our concerns. We come to you as a provider who will give us strength when we're weary, even when we feel like we're completely spent and we're completely done and we're completely over it. God, we come to you and we know that you are our supply. You are our provider. You are our source. You are the one that we run to. You are our shield. And so, Father God, we come to you in worship tonight. We say, God, speak to us, minister to us. And everyone who is hearing my voice right now, I pray that we would be able to worship you without distraction, without any issues uh, with our technical setup, our internet. God, that we would just be able to worship you uh, in spirit and in truth. Father, speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you worship uh, together with us tonight?
sing, I run to the Father. I run to the Father. I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding. No reason away. My heart bound to search it. My soul bound to friend. So I run to Father, I think that each of us, if we're honest in this moment, in this spot in time of history, that each of us are, are certainly in need of a surgeon to come and make sense of what's broken, to breathe life into places that feel hopeless and lifeless. And so tonight, wherever we're at, God, we just want to stop right now. I just want to encourage you wherever you are right now, just to stop and to bow your heads. And I ask that God, right now, that God, you would just reach into homes across the, across the internet, into spaces, and that, God, you are present with your people, and I pray and I ask right now that you would help us to recognize your presence as we walk into moments, that you want to shape us and change us, and as just as we sang, that you would reshape our hearts, that you would recreate our hearts and recreate these moments that need to be changed inside of us, to relive the old things, to heal them, restore them, and breathe new life into us, into our culture, and to us as people. And so God, we ask that this moment would be yours and we give it to you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks, worship team. Well, um, if you are... Uh, just tuning in, you just missed worship, or um, you just kind of jumping on last minute, or maybe you're watching this um, at a little bit later date, um, but we uh, are in week 14 of um, our Acts study, and so um, first thing I want to do is just tell you it's been awesome to be here, and the last few weeks have been super fun, and so if you're just joining us, we'll get you caught up on kind of how this goes and, and kind of where we've come from so we can kind of have an idea, because some of you might just be joining us. Um, just jumping into the story right now. And so I'll catch you up in just a second. But one of the things has been part of it, and, and we really started this study in the middle of our quarantine season because we felt like, hey, you know what, let's try to create a space where we can interact a little bit. And so that's part of what's super important to this experience. If you're just joining us is that you share some of your thoughts in the chats, or if you aren't one of our platforms that has a chat feature, uh, we want to ask you that you would email in your questions because the questions, the ideas, the thoughts that you have are really the kind of driving component to the last part of our conversation each Wednesday night. And so we want to make sure that you do just that. And so um, we shared with you guys last week that as we kind of looked at the season, as we kind of gradually relaunched back into in-person servicing um, services, that we're going to wind back the online uh, Wednesday night Bible study. And so next week we shared with you will be our last week, but um, really we wanted to say this, and this has been my heart as we kind of looked at wrapping things up, is that we would look at this as an opportunity for us to take what we've done here, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit tonight, and allow God to kind of tease it out inside of us and let us do something with it more than just learn more about it. And so we'll talk about that some more in a minute. But um, really, the July 1st date really kind of worked well for us because it really brought us to a really clean conclusion about in the book of Acts and what God has done with um, now 
Paul and Saul as he's journeyed in this journey. And so we'll pick that up in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to give you a couple updates. Um, over the course of the quarantine season, uh, we asked if you weren't in need of your stimulus money, that you would give it, and we would give it away to the world and to give it away to your families here at church and around the world. And, and really, we've done that, and uh, you don't get to hear about it all the time. But we heard back from some of our friends at Mission India this week, and uh, we sent some money over to support them and care for them. And actually, we have a picture of one of their, uh, a couple of their guys out doing ministry. We have a picture of them working with a guy named Mano and uh, Mano is from India and he is a poor guy. In fact, his story is detailed in the in the content that they sent back to us. And that content really was this is what they wanted us to hear was um, that he was he a oh, day worker. He went actually in and worked daily with um, uh, as a day worker in a northern part of India, about a thousand miles away from his family is. And so, um, in fact, you might have seen in that picture when they walked up and they found him, um, he was actually begging for money. And by the time they were done, they were able to return the next day, give him one of the emergency packets um, that we as, as a church family, you as church family, were able to donate to him. Um, he was sitting up on the side of a hill begging for people to give him resources and food just to survive because he's lost access to a phone. He's a thousand miles away from his family and he had gone up there to be a day worker to be able to support his family. And so this is just one story. And um, really the coolest part about this is that is one story out of 38,000 people that Mission India has reached. And so, and well, Minaj's story is just the one that we get to see today. It's a huge picture of what God has done with the resources that we've done. And obviously in partnership with other people and they've had um, the opportunity with this, even with this guy to go, hey, by the way, <clears throat> the reason we're able to give you this is because people far, far, far away that our friends love you, care for you. And they, uh, and they want you to know that you're cared for. And so they actually reached, uh, reached out to him, shared the gospel with him. And it's kind of a cool story. And so that has happened over and over and over again in India because of your generosity. And so we want to keep you up to date on that. Now, we're going to jump into the book of Acts. But over the last couple of weeks, we did a couple of things. Um, first, we just two weeks ago, we were in chapter 15. And we're going to pick up in chapter 23 today. And so we've covered a lot of ground, covered a lot of territory. And let me kind of go backwards a little bit before we go forward, because I think there's some really important and key things that we touched on that will help us kind of keep what we talk about tonight in context. And so the first of that being this is that back in Acts chapter 15, we really talked about the release of the church. What happened in Acts chapter 15 is that there was an understanding and they came to, and this is called the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council came to the conclusion that Gentiles didn't need to become Jews to be followers of Jesus. And this is a paramount moment because Paul is sitting there with some of his Gentile friends in this council saying, hey, what are you going to do with my Gentile friends who want to follow Jesus, but we don't know what to do? Do they need to become Jewish? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they have to follow all the Old Testament law or not? And so the conclusion was, listen, there are a couple things that we want to do. We want to make sure that they abstain from blood from, or excuse me, abstain from meat from, that had been sacrificed to idols and things that had been strangled. And these were dietary laws and the, the, the request for the Gentiles to do this and to abstain from sexual immorality. The request for the Gentiles to do this was really born out of a place to create space community for the Jewish believers that were with these Gentile believers to not be offended by the way that they were living. 
other than the sexual morality one, this is really a concession. One is a, is a request to love the other. This is the whole idea of being sexually pure. The other part of that that was even more interesting is that really this is a concession to say, hey, would you not make it hard for your Jewish friends who are still living under the law and trying to be good Jews as they follow Jesus, even though you don't have to. And so we see this concession happen. And in that concession, what we begin to see is Paul understands and is empowered, has clarity and gets confirmation that he is headed in the right direction. And he goes out and does two more mission trips, as we would call them Paul's first, second, and third mission. His first mission was before the council. His other two are right after the council. And he goes around the Mediterranean world planting churches. And he takes this thing and runs. And that was really what we covered for the last couple of weeks. <clears throat> he comes back to Jerusalem, and we touched on this last week, knowing his, his given prophetic words that he's going to be arrested when he comes. But there's something for Paul that he talks about this later in Galatians and also in Ephesians, that first he needs to go to the Gentile. And, or excuse me, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile over and over again. Paul has this sense, and Acts gives us this picture too, that there is a return to care for and the continuing care for the Jewish people as well. And so there's a continued mission in the book of Acts to the Jewish people. The church in Jerusalem is growing. The church in Jerusalem is reaching people. And Paul goes back to worship with his brothers, make sacrifice in the temple, have some people finish their vows as they were going to become followers, true, devout Jewish followers of Jesus. Um, and then he gets arrested. <clears throat> He's been given a prophetic word that this was going to happen. And he goes anyway, knowing that it's going to happen. And he makes that profound statement that my life, Without me following Jesus, he makes this declaration, without me following what Jesus has put in front of me, my life is worth nothing. Imprisoned or free, my life is worth nothing if I'm not following what God has called me to do. And so he wanders down that journey. He gets arrested. And we finished our whole conversation around this idea last week. And this is what we'll pick up as we jump into the next section. That Paul had a calling. And his calling was live out his life to the fullest. Listen, But he lives it out. And his calling was clear. He knew that he was called to go to Gentiles, and to Jews, and to share the gospel and build the kingdom of God. But for him, it becomes so clear and so articulate as time goes on that he over and over and over again begins to share his story, and we'll see that again. Now, for a little bit of history and a little bit of context, Luke is the author of Acts. In fact, we read last week when we were in chapter 16 and 17 that Luke joins Paul in his journey at this point. And then thus far, for the rest, almost the rest of Acts, we begin to hear the language change from he, they, and them to us. And so Luke is actually with them writing in the first person. And in fact, some of the language, and I hope that you're reading us as we go through and you've been reading these chapters as we go through because the language that Luke uses is so specific. The language that that he uses is so intricate. Only somebody personally present could kind of give us this kind of detail. In fact, as they're traveling and sometimes when they're in the boats, he gives us such great detail. You kind of feel like you're in the moment and it begins to feel a little bit like you're in a screenplay or you're actually in the story itself. And so Luke, somewhere about 15 or 20 years after this stuff happens, maybe 25, begins to give us the story of Jesus, the continuation of the gospel, and the birth of the church. Acts chapter 1 through 15 really outlined the rise of the church. And then the Gentile church in chapter 15 becomes free from the law. And then chapters 16 through 28 really highlight two things. Really kind of theologically they highlight the breach of the synagogue or the followers of Jesus, or excuse me, or the Jews from the church. Really a final separation and Jesus' church becomes prominent. There's this underlying fear. And the Jews, as they have this Jerusalem council that we talked, or council that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that it would become a predominantly Gentile church. And this is interesting. 
Because this is the paradox that will remain with all of us to this day. That this is a Jewish messianic movement, but it's ethnically diverse. And Acts continues to highlight this idea of diversity, continues to highlight this idea that it was for all people for all time, that Jesus came and the promise that was given to Abraham wasn't just for the Jewish people, not for just the descendants of Abraham, but that all people would become descendants of Abraham. We'll read a little bit more about that in just a second. Acts really is God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is kind of the messaging of Acts. God's kingdom of earth as it is in heaven. As we kind of wind down the book of Acts, I want to kind of revisit some of these bigger themes, and we'll do that again next week so that we can walk away with some key ideas about what Acts really is. Because listen, the truth is, is that these texts are important, but they're not important if we don't apply them. And applying them means we got to walk away with some themes and some understanding of what God is doing in those moments so that we can see ourselves in relationship to those texts. That God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven through Jesus, through the Spirit, and this is so important, these three things, first through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, and God's kingdom through the church. And the key to this whole thing is faithfulness to Jesus. That that the followers of Jesus and the first church would be faithful in sharing the good news in word and in deed, not just speaking, not just preaching, but they were loving the poor, they were caring for the poor, they're going to the places, going to the unloved, going to the Gentile world, as Paul began to do. And then they were also faithful in forming diverse communities that, that were, and this is important, where people were equal. This changes the paradigm. The hierarchy of the temple system that put, One person is the most holy in the country and everybody else fell in line behind them. No longer were there hierarchies in the church. Now there were leadership. There were people that were leading in the church, but there wasn't a value statement made by somebody's contribution to the church. And this began to happen even in the Jerusalem church, but more so in the Gentile church. Now we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 23. We're going, to, we're going to touch on Acts 23, 24, and 25. And then we're going to spend most of our time in Acts chapter 26. Because Acts chapter 26 begins to dive into some of what happens for Paul as he wanders into what we would kind of identify as like his imprisonment period. So Paul is now arrested. He is in Jerusalem. And some things are about to transpire. Remember, he's been drug out of the temple. If you, haven't, if you weren't with us last week, this is kind of the, the quick run through, getting us right up to speed. He gets arrested in the temple. He's drug out of the temple, asks for the opportunity to speak to the crowd. He speaks to the crowd. He delivers all these great ideas. This is what God has come. This is why God has come. This is who he's called to be. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. And then the people boo him off and tell them to kill him. So what happens is that he gets saved by Rome. These Roman soldiers come in, they save him, they pull him out, and then he asks for this, this moment. And then the commander saves, uh, saves Paul. And the thing that happens after that gets really interesting. And this is where we pick up in chapter 23. Paul's scheduled to go back to see the high, to be before the high council the next day because really that commander doesn't really understand what's going on because this is a Jewish problem. This isn't a Roman problem. This isn't a, a legal problem in the sense of kind of Rome and power and, and power structures. This really is a problem for the temple and he doesn't understand what's going on and he'll, we'll, we'll see why in just a second. But the thing that happens is he knows all I need to know is I need to go with Paul, go back to the high council and let them explain to me what's going on. Well, the high council knows that he's going to bring him back. And so in chapter 23, they lay out a plot and they begin to agree that they won't eat. They're going to fast and commit themselves fully. A bunch of the high priests are going to commit fully to making sure that Paul is dead before they ever eat or drink again. This is kind of like an oath they're taking here. And the thing that's super important to catch this is that this begins to highlight what we're going to see for the rest of Paul's journey. 
It's already been present. It's already been present in Acts, but specifically around Paul's journey, a theme around the miraculous is going to emerge to the top. And not just miraculous in the sense of like, oh, wow, look what God did. Oh, look how God spared him. And that starts in the temple and it continues here. In fact, they tell us in chapter 23, verses 12 through 35, a little bit of the story and a little bit of the backstory. And the simple version of this is as these high priests are debating, Paul's nephew hears them discussing killing Paul. In fact, we don't, aren't given details of how it happens, but we know that it, he hears the background and he goes to the commander, tells the commander, he actually goes to Paul in prison, so visits his uncle and says, uncle, they're gonna kill you if you go back to the high priest or go to, back to the high council tomorrow. They're gonna set a trap for you and for the soldiers that are escorting you back and they're gonna ambush you and they're gonna kill you. Paul tells him to go tell the commander. He tells the commander, the commander understands the, in, the intricacies of this because his job is to ma- maintain peace in Jerusalem. He can't have upheaval in Jerusalem. His job is to maintain peace. So he tells his guys to take Paul and take him to Caesarea. When he arrives in Caesarea, he is told they, uh, they give him, and he writes a letter, and you can read this letter if you want to in chapter 23. The, the commander, the Roman commander of the soldiers writes a letter to Felix, who is really the governor of all of Judea and Samaria and that entire region. So he is a Roman leader over this area. And so the complications of those things, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the tension between the Roman world and the Jewish world is that you have the Jewish temple system that was set up by God. And then you have this Roman world that's being imposed upon him. And so they have Jewish leaders and Jewish like, they're really not Jewish, but we'll talk about that in just a second. But the truth is, is what, what, what really happens in this moment is that Paul is sent to Caesarea and they tell him to hold him in Herod's home or in Herod's palace. And in fact, um, we actually have a picture of that. Um, you guys can throw that picture up if you want to. Um, this is actually uh, what the current view actually today, right now, if you visited Israel and you went to Caesarea Maritime, which is just north of um, Tel Aviv and just north uh, west of Jerusalem, you actually can see this today, that um, theater is still present um, Herod's palace is in ruins, but you can walk out and see parts of it. In fact, they believe there was a pool out in the middle of it and the hippodrome and the amphitheater over to the left there. You can actually still see those things. They're still present. They're actually still very much intact. Um, some of it is not because it's been washed over by high seas and so on and so forth. In fact, I think I have another picture. You can actually see what they believe that it looked like um, in its full construction. So we've kind of changed angles here a little bit, but you can actually see. So Paul, and if you ever have gone on a trip to Israel or you've gone with us, you actually get to go walk right out there where those open areas are, where the trees are lining that corridor on the other side of the Hippodrome, which is the, the palace. Right outside that palace, you actually get to walk in there. Some of the columns are still standing. You can actually see that. And we believe that's where Paul is sent, where he is kept for a period of time while he is imprisoned in Caesarea. And so he's put on trial in Caesarea and he's told, you're going to stay in this place. They put him in that place. And then the very next day, he stands trial. And what's ha- important, I think it's two days later, he stands trial. The accusers from Jerusalem make their journey all the way up to Caesarea. It's not close. It's a long journey. The accusers from the high council make the journey all the way up. And this is the kind of crux of chapter 24. They accuse him, but things don't really go well for them. Because Felix begins to understand that they're accusing of something they can't prove. And this is going to happen again, by the way. They can't prove and they can't follow through on and they can't verify. So when they can't prove and they can't verify, he can't do anything legally about this. 
He wants to maintain peace. And because he wants favor with the Jewish people and so many people don't like Paul and don't like the way. And in fact, in this whole conversation, this is really kind of cool because he, in chapter 24, Paul begins to give a statement about who he is, why he follows Jesus, what following Jesus means for him. And he reveals that he's part of the way. In fact, the old, you've actually probably heard us talk about this on a Sunday morning. If you hear us teaching around the early church, what we talk about a lot is that we, it was recognized as a Jewish cult early on by the Jewish leaders. And then later it began to adopt the name, the way, but they were still identified as kind of this Jewish sect of this Jewish cult. And it sounds like from what we understand from Felix's position and some of the Roman leadership in Israel at the time, they really understood that there was a movement happening, which means that it transcended outside of just kind of a small sect. This, they're actually taking root. There were some things happening. People began to recognize it as a legitimate movement. Um, and we don't have time to get into that to, to that today, but really it has taken place there. Now, Felix puts Paul on trial in chapter 24, and then we're going to move forward. He puts Felix on, or Felix puts him on trial, and nothing is solved. Felix has political pressure to please the Jews, and he does nothing. In fact, he's really enamored with Paul. In fact, he begins to have conversations with them. His wife is a Jew, so he has his wife come in. They start having these conversations, and he leaves Paul in prison for two years. Two years. He's given freedom to have his friends come visit, so Paul comes and he visits and in that time, Paul begins to do something that you and I probably would miss. At least I would. Paul doesn't look at the opportunity and the story that's right in front of him. He looks for the opportunity that's laid out in front of him. He's not looking at the current circumstances because what Paul does in this time while he's in prison, he does a couple of things. He writes a bunch of letters. A lot of letters that we don't have copies of, but the ones that we do have copies of, he writes to the Colossians. He writes to the Ephesians. He writes to the Philippians. And he writes to Philemon. And those are just the prison epistles that we have. We're certain that he wrote more. Paul capitalizes on these moments, and every time he goes and visits with Felix, he capitalizes on these moments to share Jesus with them. And the thing of it is, we're going to get into this in just a second, but the real question, and probably the thing we'll have the most questions about in a moment like this and tonight, is this idea. That Paul's story is both the miraculous, right, his nephew hearing that this is going to happen, getting rescued by out of the temple. These are miraculous moves of God. God is present. They're not just accents. God's actually moving inside of Paul's journey. We'll see that in just a minute. We'll see it later when he gets saved on shipwrecks. He, listen, God's moving. Paul, Paul has he seen people healed. God is moving in these moments. The miraculous is present in Paul's life, but at the same time, suffering and the whole conversations like you and I would have, are, where are you, God, are happening at the exact same time. Two years, he sits in prison. No trial. He sits in prison because he's entertainment for the governor and because he is a political pawn and a moment that a governor needs ammunition. He's used as a pawn to please a political agenda. Yet somewhere in this whole journey, we don't read about Paul saying this is offensive. We don't read about Paul saying this is unjust. We, look at for, we read about Paul taking advantage of the moment. And we'll get to that in just a second. Now, Paul, um, <clears throat> Paul's response to the opposition in this is really about sharing Jesus. Every step of the way, he stops and he shares Jesus. He stops and he shares Jesus. Now, what happens at the end of chapter 24 is that Felix is being replaced as the governor of Judea. And what happens is that this new guy comes in, Festus. 
he arrives in Jerusalem um, to kind of take his new role. The first place he stops is in Jerusalem. The first thing he does is meets with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And two years later, get this, two years later, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, highest priority when they meet with the governor is that they want to have Paul killed. This is still on their mind. You can understand something's going on with this way movement. And they think if they get rid of Paul, they'll get rid of the way. They're threatened, they're concerned, and there's something pressing about them. There's something really, really, really dark and, and evil taking place in this moment. Here's what it is. The hearts of people were threatened by Paul. Their power structures were threatened and people wanted him gone. They wanted the old thing to remain when the new thing had already come. Festus meets with religious leaders, comes back, arrives in Caesarea, and, says, and really kind of there's a little play in there that happens. The religious leaders again try to get him to move Paul back to Jerusalem with the intent of trying to kill him on the way there. Um, and Festus is to understand all the political dynamics that are taking place because he's the new guy in town. Um, long story short, Paul stands before Festus, defends himself, and in the middle of being defended, the religious leaders from Jerusalem come back up to Caesarea. They stand together. They begin to argue. He defends himself. They accuse him of even more egregious things that they hadn't accused him before, things they can't prove, things that he didn't do. And Paul says, and they say, he says to them, <clears throat> excuse me, they say to him, this is a religious uh, issue. You should go back to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I'm not going back to Jerusalem. I won't allow people to kill me for unjust things. If I deserve to die, I'm willing to die, but I don't deserve to die for these unjust things, so I won't go back. And because he's a Roman citizen, he has the right to appeal to Caesar for his cause. He appeals to Caesar, and Festus appoints, approves his request to go before Caesar. And this is important, and then we're going to start reading some text here, and I want to tease out a few things that we can read together. This sets up the rest of Paul's life. The rest of his journey, the rest of his story pivots in this moment. He gets affirmed and confirmation that he would go to Caesar. The promise that God had told him that he would go to Rome, the promise that God had given him long before then that he would live long enough to see and have audience with kings. He's having audience with kings and he's gonna have an audience with a king in just a second. But before we go there, I wanna say one thing and then we'll move forward. That God is using an unjust moment like this to accomplish redemption. And that redemption isn't being, isn't being done at anybody else's cost but his own. This is like Jesus. Don't, don't miss this. That the most unjust thing that's ever happened in this world was Jesus dying on the cross for you and I. But here's the thing. God is in the constant, constantly in the, in the moment of trying to take unjust moments and accomplish redemption no matter how he has to. He's going to do it with Paul and Paul makes himself fully available to do this. And here's what happens. Um, the king, Agrippa II, who was Herod the Great's um, great-grandson, arrives to build some political strategy with this new governor. He doesn't have a lot of political gain. And when I say king, really kind of here's the dynamic. You have R Rome ruling over this. You have client kings. These people are 
people that have basically bought their way into leadership. They are Roman through and through. They're educated Roman. They are not Jewish. They claim Jewish heritage. They have a little bit of Jewish heritage, but they are enamored with the Jewish people. And you'll see that in just a second because as we begin to read Agrippa II, what happens is that he begins to, Paul begins to kind of tease out his infatuation with Jewish people. They've been appointed as leaders, as kings, but they're really figurehead kings. They have some political power, but they don't really have much military or legal authority. But really what happens here is that Agrippa comes to build some rapport with the new governor who has lots of authority. And he shows up and he has an in because his sister um, is actually married to the former governor, Felix. And so there's a lot of connection here. And, and just walk this through with me. In chapter uh, 25, verse 17 we begin to see a conversation happen between Paul and his accusers. And he's having another conversation, another trial. And Festus begins to unpack this experience for Agrippa. And this is where we'll pick up. In verse 17, he begins to, Agrippa shows up in Caesarea and says, hey, what's going on? Festus says, I have this weird thing going on. I want to I kind of run it by you. And this is kind of what he's summation of what happens with Paul. But it's important to watch because there's something that takes place here that's really kind of profound. And it says this in verse 17 of chapter 25. When his accusers came here for the trial, meaning the religious leaders of the high council, I didn't delay. I called the case the very next day in order Paul brought in. But the accusations made against him weren't any of the crimes I expected. Instead, it was something about their religion and a dead man named Jesus, who Paul insists is alive. <clears throat> I was at a loss to know how to investigate these things, so I asked him whether he would be willing to stand trial on these charges in Jerusalem. But Paul appealed to his case and decided by the appealed to have his case decided by the emperor. So I ordered that he be held in custody until I could arrange to send him to Caesar. To Caesar. Agrippa says, I want to meet this guy. I want to know what's going on. And he says, you will tomorrow. And this kind of sets the stage for this very dramatic moment that we're going to see as we walk this through. Here's the big picture, that God is using something oppressive to transform his people for all the world for all time. Let me say that again. God is using something oppressive because what's going to happen here is going to be a teasing out of something that's really important for all people for all time. Paul is going to use his platform to influence leadership, not just here, but this moment and how he responds to this moment is going to send him to Rome and give him an audience to work with people that will change the entire world. And we'll, and we'll get into this next week when he gets there. But when Paul arrives in Rome, he has arrived at the center of the world. God is using, this is so important, God is working in just moments for himself. Here's why. Because God is in the business of the take of oppressive things and allowing them to transform his people. And thus not just transforming his people, but changing all people. And throughout time, for all time, changing all people for all time, for his good. And the conversation that will keep coming up for us as we read Paul's story, or at least it should come for us, God, where are you in this? Because this isn't the way that a guy that has given his life for you, that's been beaten for you, that's been suffered for you, that's been in jail. This isn't the way that I would assume that my kind of paradigm that you would repay this guy, but Paul keeps leaning in. And he keeps leaning in. And he keeps leaning in. And in chapter 26, he begins to identify with something that has been taking place for a second here. And I want to stop. I want to talk about this. And then we'll go back and read chapter 26 together. Because there's some really good lessons in this story. See, Paul 
has this habit of living in places that are uncomfortable. See, here's what it is. Really for Paul is that Paul chose to accept the invitation of the kingdom of God. Jesus shows up and we hear his story over and over and over again in Acts. In fact, in 24 and 25, he retells his story again about the Damascus Road experience. And one of the things that is over and over and over clear is that Paul is given an invitation to the kingdom of God. And what he does is he responds to that invitation, but the invitation to the kingdom of God, to participate in the kingdom of God, to leverage his life for the kingdom of God, is something that's a little bit different than we're probably used to. And I want to look at that for a second here because the kingdom of God is an invitation to transformation. Entering into the kingdom of God, both here and in the next life, is about transformation. And transformation requires change. And change requires being uncomfortable. So often we're assuming that things shouldn't happen like this for Paul. Or we read it for Paul and we're like, hey, this is okay that it's happened to Paul. Because God, look what God did with it. He planted all these churches. He wrote all these books. He wrote all this New Testament. Let me say this. In the middle of the moment, I don't think Paul was thinking, hey, God's going to use this all for good. He ends up writing that later. Actually, he probably wrote it before this moment. But what he is really understanding is it doesn't matter about this moment because I'm going to choose to be present. I'm not going to look past this moment because God is still in this moment even if I don't like it. But here's what Paul really understood and what he embraced. And I want to kind of land on this because I think it's one of those things that is a theme in Paul's life that I don't like but need to talk about and I don't think very many of us like but we need to talk about. Paul accepts an invitation to leverage his life for the kingdom of God, the one that so many of us have, to follow Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, to become a disciple of Jesus. And he's willing to do that all the way into the uncomfortable spaces. And here's what we all know about change. Uncomfortability is the predecessor to change. Without uncomfortability, we don't ever have change. Here's why I said this. Listen, the kingdom of God is about transformation. Transformation is about change. And change is about being uncomfortable. Change never happens without us first becoming uncomfortable. And Paul understands that, the kingdom of God change and internal change, because here's what Paul understands and you and I understand, but we often don't articulate, is that God is in the business of using external things to provoke internal change. And as he makes internal change, God begins to change the world around us because of those things. But let me digress. Because Paul chooses to live uncomfortable, There's a lesson in this for us because this lesson is for you, it's for me, it's for us. We can't read through Acts and not understand that the invitation to participate in the kingdom of God, both now and forever, is a challenge and a call to being uncomfortable so that change can come both in us, with us, and through us. So the question I would pose right now, and then we'll move on, is this. Are we good with being uncomfortable? Is being uncomfortable with our finances, is being uncomfortable with our privilege, is being uncomfortable with our time, is being uncomfortable with issues of race something we're good with? Because here's what I know and you know, that if we're not uncomfortable enough in our lives, we won't change. Because if we're not uncomfortable with the way that our culture is responding to itself right now and the, and the dynamics of, of the world that we're living in right now, if we're not uncomfortable with the fact that people in our culture aren't treated the same because of the color of their skin, if we're not uncomfortable with those things, we won't change. And here's what we all know. We all have some prejudice built into us. Here's how I know that. Because everybody for all time has had prejudice built into them. Paul lived, taught, and even wrote about this, 
2 Corinthians, Paul leans in and just says, all things are, are made new. All things are made new in Christ. But the invitation is that you have to go through a process to be uncomfortable to allow change to happen. Here, here's what else happened. Paul, Peter, James, all had to get uncomfortable. Chapter 15, they had to rework their worldview. They had to rework their racial superiority complex in order for them to be able to be used by God to do what he actually wanted to do. They had to get uncomfortable before they could be used to do what God wanted to do. Here's our problem. Then I'll get into chapter 26. I don't think we think that it's God when we're uncomfortable. I don't. When I get uncomfortable, I get squeezed. My first, my first response is, this is bad. This isn't good. God can't be part of this. And yet Paul, and we're going to see this in just a second, as he begins to interact with Agrippa, he doesn't even think twice about being in an uncomfortable position. He just leans into the moment and does something that I need to learn from, and maybe you do too. He leans into the moment, living in the present. He's aware of the future, but he's not looking past the present. In chapter 1 of 26, it says this, Then Agrippa said to Paul, King Agrippa, you may speak in your defense. So Paul, gesturing with his hand, started his defense. I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today. By the way, I've already given my defense four or five different times. I've also been here for two years, but I'm not going to talk about that today. This is what's going on for Paul. For I know that you are an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now, please listen to me patiently. What Paul is doing is reaching out and appealing to his kind of uh, eccentric side. He had this fascination with Jewish culture. He had this fascination with Jewish religion. Even though he wasn't Jewish, even though he really didn't practice it, he was still enamored with the idea. And so Paul is knowing that he's educating these things, is reaching out and kind of teasing this conversation out with him. Paul then goes on to defend why he is so qualified to be the person, this is so smart, why he's so qualified and he, he can't be wrong about what he has seen because he is like all the other religious leaders, he defends himself. And then when he picks up, he picks up in verse 15, sharing another version of his Damascus Road story. And the other version of this new version of his Damascus Road story includes something that's really important. I want to read it because he finishes and uh, he begins his, his, or continues, excuse me, his conversation with Agrippa by giving his recounting his uh, uh, Damascus Road story, leading to something. He's going somewhere with it. It's not an accident. He's not just kind of dropping it there. He's doing something here. Here's what he's saying. He says, the Lord showed up to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's useless for you to fight against my will. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. In verse 16, he says, now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and my witness. Tell people that you've seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you both from your own people and from the Gentiles. And I will, don't miss this, rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Paul leans in and shares his story, but puts a little twist on the story, or at least shares a different version of the story, or adds a little bit more detail to the story. is that, and, and here's, here's where he's going to go, because Paul is no longer just defending himself, he's preaching. 
Paul is leveraging his opportunity to have an audience with the king and he is leveraging it for Jesus, not for his own defense. Get this. He is defending himself, but he's going to pause in the middle of his defense and he's going to let them know that Jesus, this Jesus thing is no longer just available because these guys are all Gentiles. All of them sitting in the room, they're all Gentiles other than the accusers. All are Gentiles. All of these guys, Agrippa, Festus, Felix, they've all been Gentiles. Paul is preaching at the people he know God, who knows God has called them to him. Watch this. This is so huge. He says, hey, by the way, <clears throat> for their sins will be forgiven and they will give, be given a place among God's people. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. This goes back to the whole promise, the Abrahamic promise that, that they would be, that Abraham would be the father of many nations, that his people would be a blessing to the whole world. And don't miss this. And what Paul is saying, hey, by the way, that thing that was exclusive, that was just Jewish, that was just in the temple, is no longer just in the temple, that Jesus changed all things for all people for all time. Oh yeah, Agrippa, that's for you too. And the thing I think we fail to remember in moments of trial, of opposition, is that so often there are opportunity and we're looking at the suffering, we're not looking at the opportunity, and Paul is looking right past the suffering. He's welcoming the uncomfortability, knowing it's going to change him and it's going to change the world around him. And he welcomes it and welcomes it and he'll welcome it again. And we'll talk about this next week. He ends up in a shipwreck and he welcomes it and he welcomes it and he welcomes it because he knows that in the uncomfortability, God can move. He knows that even in the unjust moments, even, listen, in the dark moments, God can use unjust dark things to be redemptive and to healing to the people around him because that's what God can do. He begins to talk, and talk around the miraculous and isn't it possible that God could raise somebody from the dead? And this is a really interesting conversation. But he goes on in verse 19. And so King Agrippa I obeyed the vision from heaven. I preached to first those in Damascus. Then I went to Judea. And he goes on in verse 22. But God has protected me right up to this very present time so I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except that what the prophets and Moses said would happen. And the Messiah would suffer and the first would rise from the dead and they would announce God's way to the Jews and the Gentiles alike. Suddenly Festus shouted, Paul, you are insane. You have, to have you've, too much study has made you crazy. <laughs> it's funny. Paul replies, no, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is the sober truth and King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are all familiar to him. For they are not done in a corner. They were not done in hiding. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And in that moment, it says that Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can quickly persuade me to become a Jesus follower? Right, here's what's happening in this moment. Paul is standing before a king who holds his future in the balance and he is leveraging it for an opportunity to save the guy's soul. Here's the thing that's so important and the thing that we don't understand and that we, will, we probably can't fully ever understand is that Agrippa's father executed James and imprisoned Peter just, just a few years before this. Don't get this wrong. His family is not like, Peter shouldn't like this person, yet Peter looks past the persons, the people, the Gentile, the corrupt king who's probably in an incestuous relationship with his sister, whose uncle beheaded John the Baptist. Listen, you guys are tracking with me here? Listen, Paul's looking right past all of these moments, 
looking in the opportunity and seeing the humanity in a guy who's sitting across from him who needs Jesus too. He's not waiting for the preacher to do it. He becomes the preacher. He is the preacher. He's not looking for the attorney to do it. He becomes his own attorney. And he doesn't even leverage it for his own good. He leverages it for Agrippa's good and he leverages it for Festus's good. And he wants this moment to be leveraged. And he's not looking past the moment trying to get to the next thing. He's living in this moment trying to capitalize on this opportunity. And look what he says. Verse 29. Whether quickly or not, I pray that God, to God, that both of you and everyone here in this audience become like the same like me, a follower of Jesus. Except for these chains, by the way. I don't really like them. And the thing that's so interesting is that Peter, or excuse me, Paul walks away in this moment. But Paul, in this moment, almost it's almost as if he's looking at everybody in the room. He's looking at everybody that, at the high council. He's looked at everybody that was in the room with Felix and now with Festus and now with Agrippa. And he's saying, hey, by the way, you can put me through the circus, but the thing I've come to realize is that I'm here for you. See, here's what the thing. People in power always assume that the person in front of them needs their mercy and their grace. What Paul is assuming is that he isn't there for their mercy and their grace. He is there for their betterment. See, Paul takes these opportunities and turns them fully inside out. I don't get it. My brain doesn't work like that. I hope that I grow and I'm mature enough and wise enough to think like that. But Paul looks at this opportunity. It's as if he's just saying this. Hey, by the way, I'm here for you. I'm not here because I did anything wrong. I'm not here unjustly, even though I am. I'm not here because I'm bitter. I'm not here because I've done anything wrong. I am here because God wants me here and he wants me here for you. Paul has this amazing ability to turn these things into being about other people every step of the way. And he leverages his time and his talent and his history and his wisdom and his education to do it. Because Paul has gotten a hold of something that I think I struggle to get a hold of and probably we all do. that the invitation to be part of the kingdom of God and to follow Jesus is an invitation to transformation. And that transformation is an invitation to change. And that change requires being uncomfortable. And the second thing that's happening for Paul over and over and over again is the miraculous. And don't, don't miss it. I don't think these things are disconnected. I think they're fully connected. Paul is willing to put himself into uncomfortable positions for other people's benefit and he expects God to meet him because God gave him a promise, remember his calling, that you're gonna go do these things. And he leaned into that calling with everything that he had and he chose to allow the moments that God would produce in front of him to be something that he could grab a hold of and leverage for the kingdom. Because when the moments got uncomfortable, Paul isn't dismayed by it. He looks for the opportunity in the middle of it. And I don't know about you, but First thing I would be thinking is, how dare you keep me in here for two years? And the thing that Paul says is, oh, hey, by the way, I'm here for you. You don't see it. You only see the confusion and the conflict, but Jesus sent me here for you. So when I can, I'm going to tell you about him. He leverages the moment. He lives in the present. He's aware of the future, but he's not looking, at the, or looking past the present. verse 29, it says, quickly or not, I pray to God that both of you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am. 
What Agrippa was asking him was, so you think that all the foul things that I've done, the inappropriate things I know that are very offensive to you and your Jewish people, probably me having my sister as my pseudo-wife, my half-sister Bernice as my pseudo-wife. We believe that he was living in a, uh, yeah, anyway. You can figure that part out. Really this idea of kind of this incestuous relationship. And he's like, you think, you think instantly, you think instantly I could just become like you? And the thing I think Paul is saying is, yeah, because I'm just like you, and it happened for me. But he finishes this, and when the king, then the king, the governor, Bernice, and all the others stood and left. As they went out, they talked it over and agreed. This man hasn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa says to Festus, how could you have been set free if you hadn't appealed? He could have been set free if you hadn't appealed to Caesar. Now, the thing that I think is so important here is that we're being given a picture of Jesus all over again, over and over and over again. He's not guilty. He's not guilty. What do we do with him? He's not guilty. What do we do with him? Yet this pain and his suffering and Paul's ultimate suffering and finally his entire life following his Damascus Road experience will be one big journey of suffering and leveraging himself for other people, just like Jesus. Here's the thing. The miraculous that happens in Paul's life, I don't think is an accident. I think it's because he leverages himself into the uncomfortable spaces. He allows himself to change, to not be a hypocrite. He allows himself to no longer have these poor images of other people and feel proud and superior and he gets humbled and looks in the eyes of kings and isn't intimidated. He gets humbled and looks in the eyes of peasants and sees Jesus. See, this is what's so key about what happens for Paul because Paul is going to stand before Caesar. And what God does for Paul, ultimately the picture of Paul in front of Caesar is this idea that that the kingdom of God is going to arrive in Rome in the center of the world. And arriving in Rome in the center of the world is going to change all time and all history. But it doesn't start unless Paul leverages the moments that are given to him, accepts the invitation to be part of the kingdom and makes himself really uncomfortable. Uh, hopefully you guys texted in some questions and chatted in some questions because we're going to jump into that section right now and John's going to join me in just a second here. But I want to leave us a couple of thoughts as we jump into this part of it. Have we really considered the invitation to the kingdom of God to be part of the kingdom of God to be a follower of Jesus really means? Are we willing to walk into uncomfortable spaces? And ultimately, are we willing to change? Because if you are, God will use the external experiences or might be using those external experiences to try to catalyze internal change for you, for me, for us, for the church, for our society right now, to catalyze change inside of us. But the question is, are we willing to wade into the uncomfortability to allow God to change who we are and reshape us so that the kingdom of God can grow in other people? I know that's a really big, grand question, but the kingdom of God and that growing, it looks like the people that live in the house next to you or live in the house with you or work in a cubicle next to you. And so my hope for us is we can really tease that out, that idea as individuals is are we really, 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 really willing to consider the invitation of the kingdom, that it's uncomfortable, that it requires change? We love the idea of the transformation part. We love that idea. At least I think we do. We love the idea of transformation, the change part, the uncomfortability part. We're kind of like, oh, I can do, I can do without that. I, no. I want them, I want the miracles, but not the mess. And right, uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. 
Yeah, for sure. I think <clears throat> Paul is just an amazing example. Like you're saying, just he, he saw behind the curtain. He saw what was going on from a spiritual perspective and in the long view. And all of these amazing like historical figures who were mm-hmm. world leaders at the time didn't see what he was seeing. And he was like, I'm going to sit here and witness to you on your dime and you're going to, you know, you're, and you think, like you said, you think you're going to offer me grace mm-hmm. that I'm desperate to be free. And the truth is, I'm not. Rome is going to pay for my trip to Rome and I'm going to have an influence in the center of the world. And yeah. uh, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. To have that patience and that the ability to see from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. So, um, would you have some questions? We do. Uh, I think we, we owe a question from last week that we need to go back to, don't we? Yeah, that's, I was going to start with that. So. All right. No, that's good. So we didn't have time last week. We had so many questions last week. We didn't have time to get to one that I thought was really good and something we, that we unintentionally skipped over in the teaching. And so, yeah, yeah why don't you jump in? And it up. came in right at the very end. And so just want to encourage you, if you have questions, um, shoot them to us now. We want to make sure we don't miss them uh, as we run out of time. So this is from Mama B. In Acts 16, there's a focus brought on Lydia and the house of Lydia. In chapter 17, 4, there's a reference to leading women joining Paul and Silas. In verse 12, refers to prominent women. 1734 mentions another woman by name. What was the role of women in the early church? Why is there such a division about women in leadership in the church today? So uh, I think... They kind of answered the question, part of the first part of the question themselves already. But I want to tease this out because I think it's yeah. good. Um, what what role uh, was what was the role of women in the early church? Really, the role of women was really minimized in the Jerusalem church. Now, what we don't what we don't know, we don't have records of, and we don't have discussion about is the women that were present with Jesus. We know that women were present with Jesus. A lot of women were present with Jesus. In fact, they served with Jesus. They did ministry with Jesus. Um, they weren't part of the 12, quote unquote, but we see as soon as Jesus stepped into any real personal moments, there are always women there mm-hmm. serving, caring, doing ministry with them. Um, we also have to take into consideration women being left out was a cultural issue as well. Um, they were not seen as nearly as individual or as they were seen much more in the shadow of their husband right. or, or the male figures. So um, when we look at that in the early church, that was still very much present. Um, we do see women emerge in the Jerusalem church. And I'm saying that just the Israel church, the early church. We do see some women emerge out of that. But where more prominently we see that begin to take place, which is ironic for the next part of this, is really in the Gentile church. It begins to just explode in the Gentile church. Mm-hmm. Women are leading all over the place. They're leveraging, they're building resources for the church. Interesting thing about that is that that very thing that we see take place in the Gentile church is the very place that we draw from, mostly in Timothy, about how women can't be in leadership. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because it's the exact same people, or Paul in particular, who's planting these churches and women are leading all over in these churches, yet somehow in this whole process, um, we use Paul's very own words after he planted churches with women to say that women should sit down and they shouldn't speak and yeah. we take a lot of text. And so my argument for why is there such a division about women and leadership in the church today? Uh, gross misunderstanding and misinterpretation of text. Mm-hmm. That's why I'd say it. Yeah. And a overarching patriarchy that likes to stay in power. Am I allowed to say that? 
<laughs> as a white, educated, middle-class male, yeah. I know. Yeah. So let me take her question one step further then. Okay. So she talks about why is there such a, a division? She says, what was the role of women in the early church? What do you feel like we should see as the role of women in the church today? Hmm. Um, my own personal experience um, in ministry is that for us to not empower women to lead in ministry means that there's a huge part of the heart of God that is absent. Mm. That, that's been my experience. When, I, when, I work, when I've spent lots of time working alongside of women, some of our friends and people that we've done ministry with a lot, I begin to see an, another part of the heart of God emerge out of those things that I, I can't, I've never seen, wow. I can't and I've not seen men be able to engage with and um, a particular set of giftings to reach into people's lives, to hear people's stories, to speak into people's lives. And, and this isn't, a lot of times we find these in like the healing spaces, but that, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to just kind of couch that into the like, a, oh, well, they can be worship leaders and children's pastors and healers, but uh, some of my favorite teachers are women. And I think there's something really important about that because there's a voice that we need to hear that represents the heart of God. If we're all made in the image of God, right? There's a very, yeah. very deep part of God not being represented in church if we don't have women speaking into lives and, and, and giving input into people's lives. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So my, 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 admonishment would be that I get that there are spaces and places that are more comfortable for women given our, our culture, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I would just say, I hope that women would find not just other women to do ministry with, but they would find men to do ministry with. I, I know that that's an awkward thing, but we need your voices, not just in women's ministry, but not just in children's ministry. We need your voices in youth ministry. We need your voices in outreach. We need your voices in leadership positions. Um, and those are spaces that God's Grace can be expressed to people in ministry in the kingdom, really, like we talked about tonight, because of that. Yeah. If you're willing to do it. Yeah. yeah. And we talk a lot, I think, I think in the, I don't know, in our culture, we talk about the Bible or we talk about the church as feeling old-fashioned in regards to our view on women. Um, and that may be true, um, but to, to look at the New Testament with new eyes and realize how re- incredibly radical uh, Jesus was Mm -hmm. for having women who were his disciples who would follow him around, like you said, not part of the 12, but then also with Paul um, and his relationship with seeing women in leadership and all that. It was absolutely radical. Um, It wasn't. We apologize. Um, Someone highlighted it right at the end of service last week that we had skipped over it, and it was not an intentional thing for us to skip over. So. Um, we were not trying to avoid the conversation of women in ministry or anything during that. So not at that's all. why we were willing to come back to it and talk Had about it. Had to give you week. a week to study. That was what we were doing. <laughs> uh, Make sure you're or, ready get, for or get heat from my female friends in ministry. One yep. of the two. Yeah. Uh, James says, How can we as a church community leverage our own lives in a community and um, I think be an example of the perseverance that Paul operated in? How do we connect? There's a lot to this question, but how do we connect, engage? love on, show the gospel, et cetera, in a time when we cannot be together and in the future in a stronger way than we were before. I think probably the first thing, I think they're all, I think this, your entire question, James, I think is, is endemic of a, of a very, very, very different worldview that, that Paul has versus the worldview that probably we have in the culture and the way that we live today. The way that we live, and I was actually reading in my journal today about this, uh, just in my own confession, was 
you know, one of my tendencies, one of my weaknesses as a person is that I want to go to the place of least resistance. I want to go to the easy place. I want to go to the place that doesn't require so much work and it's more comfortable. And I think a lot of times when we do that, when we take the path of least resistance, that oftentimes jeopardizes relationships because relationships require work. They require tension. They have friction. Um, they have lots of possibility in them. But in doing so, because we want to take a path of release resistance and we celebrate luxury and the ease of life in our culture today, we don't celebrate suffering. We don't celebrate the fact that great things happen in suffering. We love the hero story. We love the Rocky story. We love the suffering until they overcome the, you know, the over, uh, overcomer story. But we don't, we don't want to celebrate the suffering. We only celebrate the victory. We don't want to celebrate what is learned in the suffering. And because of that, we just avoid it altogether. And avoiding it, I think we avoid community because there's pain in that. And so we don't recognize pain can be good and that God can be present in pain. And I think that is all over in Paul's message. God is still present in the pain. Some of us have a theology that teaches us that if there's pain or that there's suffering, that God's not in it and that you've sinned or that you've done something wrong. Um, that's bad theology. Yeah. There's not, there, the, God, the God that people say exists, this God, that if bad things are happening to you, that means you're not in God's favor. That God doesn't exist. Right. Um, and that if there is a God, uh, if bad things are happening, then God isn't present in that thing. That, that God doesn't exist. Nowhere does God ever promise that bad things wouldn't happen and him still be God. And I think yeah. when we abandon that, James, let me come full circle to what you're saying, what you're asking, because I think the question you're asking it, um, how do we connect? How do we engage? How do we love on? How do we share the gospel, et cetera, et cetera. Listen, we can be creative. This isn't really a question about not being together right now. This is a question about why haven't we established those relationships and made those priorities in our lives before now, before COVID, before quarantine. And the answer, short answer for me is, I think, is that we have failed to teach a gospel that requires other people. We've created a very individual, individualistic yeah. gospel. That's a very, the way I would say, it's a very Pharisaic gospel, mm -hmm. very hierarchy. It's a very vertical relationship where right. my piety is the most important thing, not how I treat other people. And Jesus really says, hey, listen, your rightness with me or your righteousness has to do with the way that you interact and you care for other people. And so I would say the best way and the way we do it better in the future and we do it stronger is that we accept the fact that we oftentimes like the easy way out. And the hard way is to make time sacrifice, to go be with other people, to make relational sacrifices to go be with other people, to be in community, and this is hard, to be transparent and to be honest and open about what's right. going on in your life and your marriage and your finances and you know, your parenthood. Um, that's, I think, the answer to those questions is that we have to just choose it. Yeah. Nobody can, we, we can teach it, we can teach better theology, we can, we can you know, kind of shame people into going into small groups and stuff more, but until we have a heart change that says, I need this thing to make me uncomfortable so that I can grow, we won't grow. Right. Yeah, that's good. Um, this is a, actually in some ways is a really good follow-up to that question. Donut Queen says, how do we come into a place of saying yes to the uncomfortable? I get being in the word, prayer, and fasting. What else can we practice that keeps us centered in Christ and have hearts to say yes to the uncomfortable? Hmm. So I think when I look at Paul, particularly, let's just stick with Paul. In, in fact, Acts, the uncomfortable thing really has to do with lifestyle and choosing not just like actions, but adopting a worldview. And that's why I kind of touched on that earlier. I, I said, 
I wish I had this worldview that when opposition comes my way, I just see it as opportunity. Paul doesn't, doesn't even blink and he just sees it as opportunity and sees it as opportunity. I don't. And so I got to say here, when you ask that question, um, how do we get past the being uncomfortable? And then the thing I would point back to you, the places that I found the most uncomfortability and growth in that is when I recognize two things. One, I probably don't know as much as I think I know. And I'm willing to listen and learn. And the second would be that as I listen and learn, both to other people and to God, I begin to develop a very strong sense of calling. And when I live out that calling, as I follow that calling, I'm automatically uncomfortable. And so if we're not uncomfortable and we're looking for physical activity to make us uncomfortable, we're missing calling. And I think that's really important. As you wander in calling, the opposition and the obstacles and the uncomfortability, they're going to find their way to us. Yeah. They're going to find their way into us and the boss that we don't like, they're going to find us and then we're going to grow in that and we're going to learn how to love that person. We're going to learn how to be long suffering and then we're going to earn favor with those people and then God's going to do that. I mean, they're going to constantly come to us. But if we're in the wrong job, we can't go learn that lesson yeah. because we took the job that paid more, not the one that had the right purpose or whatever it might be. And so I think really calling and identifying that, I keep going back to that and people are probably getting tired of it, but I think it's so important. Paul understood his calling and he leveraged it and he, and he ran with it. And I think there's a really great lesson there for us. If we haven't figured out calling, the best thing we could do would probably be to push everything else aside and figure that out. Yeah. What an important uh, pursuit is to figure out what we're formed for, what we're called to. Um, All for Jesus said, when Festus took power, you said that the religious leaders were still focused on Paul, saying they wanted the old thing to remain when the new thing had already gone. How can we be open and aware to not be blinded by our insecurities and comforts of what was and recognize that God often stretches us and makes us uncomfortable in the moments that uh, need to be changed the most? And so I guess uh, all for Jesus, I, I'm, I, if I'm reading this right, how can we not be the religious leaders? You know, when that new comes to embrace it and see it as Paul did and not the way that they were seeing it. Um, I, I'm not sure this is a, like a terribly spiritual answer, but it's a power dynamic answer. Anytime you have something to lose by things changing and you're defending the way that things were because you benefit by the way things were mm. is often a time we need to rethink yeah. what we're doing. Whether it's, a, whether it's race in America or whether it's you know, a pastor's authority in a church community or somebody that has a grip of authority over a large group of churches. Um, if the challenge of change is pinching us, if you will, because it's going to cost us something, yeah. our, our lack of willingness to pay the price to change for the future, to have the opportunity God wants it to have, usually is an indicator that we have selfish motivation because we're trying to preserve the thing. And here's what we all know about systems. Systems always exist to protect themselves. And so when we're trying to defend the system because it is what has always been, that would be our first indicator. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what we always do. People use language like that. And so in your own life, you're like, well, that's just what I do. Um, Those are the kind of things that should be triggers for us to go, how do I get more open uh, to my insecurities? The other thing is, is, insecurities are always, always, always driven by fear. And so if you find something fearful and you try to avoid it and it's something you try to avoid, I would say in our personal lives, that's probably something you should deal with. 
Yeah. If you're trying to avoid it, then you're identifying that you have a fear of it, and that is breeding deep insecurity. And those deep insecurities are the places that oftentimes make us really uncomfortable, whether it's going to dinner at that weird family's house down the street, or whether it's um, befriending somebody that doesn't live like you. Um, those are usually the places that are fearful, and those are the places that we grow when we find ourselves uncomfortable. Yeah, that's good. And Paul had gotten to a place where he was so comfortable with the uncomfortable and so ready to throw <laughs> it's away. It's almost like it wasn't uncomfortable for him anymore. He was, well, and he becomes this, this guy who just so, so willingly throws away everything. I mean, he even says it in Philippians uh, 2. He says, he says, everything that was worthwhile to me, I consider it rubbish or dung or, you know, however you translate that word. And it's... Poop. Yeah, it's, it, <laughs> the Greek word is scubala. It's it, poop, yes. yeah. So it's... it's but he's, he's like, I just, I, I consider it all worthless mm. in comparison with knowing Christ. Yeah. And he's like, hey, if I die, cool. I'm all good. If I stay here, that's all right too. Like he was, he'd gotten to that point. I mean, what a, what But he really has surrendered. Goal. I think this is important. That he surrendered to the sovereignty of God, that God, as long as he continued to follow what God had for him, that God was going to have his will and going to have his way. And uh, it didn't matter when his time would come, God would have accomplished what he wanted to accomplish with Paul because he was that open, you know? Right. Yeah. No fear in that for me, I don't think. We need to learn to get there. Um, East Coasty says, uh, you mentioned the diversity of the early church. Oh, yeah, this is, this is a great question for our time. All people being equal. Something that's been really hard for me lately has been watching this the church. This is when the music changes. This, this is the question when the music changes <laughs> yeah. in the movie, right? Okay. Um, something that's been really hard for me lately has been watching the church during this time of racial tension. The church, and East Coast uses capital C. It's not just water of life, but the church, mm -hmm. uh, universal or global, is being all of us that make up the church. The church meaning the body of Christ. It feels like that what I thought was diversity was more tolerance. How do you think we can actually get to a place of true healing and true diversity? That's a great distinction to make. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I think... The first thing we have to identify is like we've had this conversation around here a lot. If racism and elitism and privilege that is leveraged against other people for other people's benefit, it, it's sinful, right? Yeah. Like this is this is like the, 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 the whole source of it. So if it's sinful, the thing we have to recognize is that it's never going to be fully rooted out of people because we're broken and we're never going to be yeah. fully healed this out of heaven. Um, so I think we need to see it the same way as we see kind of sanctification uh, because I think it's a sanctification issue that if we're recognizing racism and division and those things as a sin, meaning that it's because of my personal preference and, and having choosing my desire over somebody else's desire, mm -hmm. really violating people, this is the whole picture of loving your neighbor, right? So what I think is that we're never going to fully get to true diversity. We're never going to get to a place of true healing this side of heaven. But that doesn't mean, and I think we all kind of know that, that, that doesn't mean that we, don't, that we don't leverage everything we can to try to get there. Yeah. And so my arguments would be things like, how do we get to true diversity? We have real honest conversations, but those honest conversations are have to start with, and I kind of hinted at this in my teaching tonight, and the teaching is they have to start at home. Those real conversations have to start in, inside of like, hey, how honest am I really going to be about racism in my home or my privilege or my uncomfortability with a black church or a Latino church or a Hispanic or, you know, or a Asian church or a white church? How uncomfortable am I with those things? And am I willing to lean into that thing? And if I'm willing to just admit it, first of all, say, I, I love what Ken Ulmer said. I, I'm a recovering racist. Like, yeah. it's like, 
it's so important for all of us to try to get to the place of recovering, identifying as, as having you know, prejudice and then moving forward. Whether it's color or culture, really it doesn't matter. This is, like a, this is a sanctification issue that God is trying to teach us about himself in these moments. And I think that's the thing that's scary for us, that true healing and true diversity comes in us recognizing that God is in the face of the person that we think less of. That literally God's in the face of that. That, that is God's right. face and God's character and his person, um, their person is present inside of that person. And when, when I begin to see it that way, I begin to change the dynamic of how I understand diversity and how I understand all of these ideas, really the healing part too. The healing comes when I identify God in that person. The healing comes inside of me when I identify that, but it also comes to them when I identify that. And as I identify God inside of them, that I, I no longer can hold them hostage for looking the way that they are because they are God. Mm. They have God built into them, not their God, but they have God DNA built into them. And if we're willing to look past that yeah. and begin to look into that space, I think that's where true healing happens. The diversity thing I think is a little bit more uh, complicated, but I think it stems from the same space. The diversity thing, um, again, this is just my opinion. I'm not well-versed in uh, like reconciliation, uh, but just my, my opinion would be just simply this, that 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 true diversity won't happen until we recognize the beauty of what God has done in that culture and what he's done in this culture and what he's done in that culture. And when we begin to identify that God's present in those cultures, um, that I think is when, that God is, his, let me use this phrase, let me be just kind of deeper, that God's redeeming work is at present, at, at work in the black church or in black communities and in white communities and in Asian communities. And when we begin to want to partner with that and we begin to identify that and affirm that, and not just like, I don't get it. Affirm that God is good in that church, that church that doesn't look like me, doesn't sound like me, doesn't talk like me. When we yeah. begin to affirm those things, we're affirming that God's redemptive work is taking place in those church communities or in those communities and that we are with them in doing that. And when we begin to affirm that, it's the same thing as looking in somebody's eyes and recognizing the face of God. We can't, we can't not be okay with it. That doesn't mean everything's okay. That, that's right. not the point. There's not a lot of things that are happening in our church or in the other church over here that aren't okay, that we're still okay with them. And we gotta be okay with that. Yeah. And I think that's really where the diversity thing happens. We begin to recognize God's redeeming work and acts happening both in those churches and around the world. I think this is what happens for us when we go on a mission trip or something too. We yeah. begin to identify that God's redeeming acts are taking place in his very specific way in a very specific culture. And when we can celebrate those things, I think that's when you begin to understand that healing and diversity can be a real thing and you kind of get a picture of heaven a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, if you're not okay with diversity, <laughs> heaven's gonna be a bummer. <laughs> um, Mark W., I think this is gonna be the last question for us tonight. How can we vote as Christians right now? But they're not, no softballs tonight. They're <laughs> heaters, straight through. Um, how can we vote as Christians right now with so many unbiblical examples in leadership? I'm having a hard time the more I read the word and pray as I get closer to God's heart. Um, Mark, let me say first off, first off, as a voter, thank you that you're approaching this as a Christian and that you're reading the word and praying in your process as you're trying to figure out who to support. But Shane, what do you think about that? Now, you have a degree in <laughs> Don't tell her. Right <laughs> I do, I have a degree in now. political science uh, and a concentration in political philosophy. But truthfully, Mark, your question transcends really voting trends and those kind of things. Um, first of all, I would say I'm glad that conviction is, is striking your heart. Um, 
here's how I process it. I don't really know how to answer this other than I'll tell you how I process it. Um, right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, here's how I process things. Um, and without going into like the entire history of the United States and the Declaration of Independence and those things, let me just kind of say this. The truth of the matter is, is that we live in a broken world of broken systems led by broken people. Yeah. I think the concern for me isn't when broken people are leading. It's when people that understand that those people are broken are continuing to empower those people to lead. And we have to do something about that. We have to do something about that. That's our responsibility. As followers of Jesus, our responsibility is to make the world a better place for other people. And if we have the luxury in the United States of doing that through voting and through how we leverage resources and how we do those things, we do. Um, whether it's moral issues or whether it's financial issues or the betterment of the poor or however you want to look at those things, we have the luxury of making the world a better place, a call of the gospel to make the world a better place, to share good news through those things. Um, but if we don't identify those things for what they are, broken, failed systems from day one, there's nothing to return back to that was better than now. Mm -hmm. They were broken then, they're more complicated now, there's more brokenness built into them now, but the truth of the matter is, is that if we're really honest about this, it's always been broken. So when it's always been broken, whether it was slavery being part of the beginning of our culture, or whether it's abortion or whatever, pick, pick whatever hot topic you want to, that are really not that hot, they're about life and, and, and God is always for life, like this is always the issue, right? Yeah. Um, I think the thing we have to recognize is that there always have been broken and that you're voting for a broken person. Um, and in voting for that broken person, um, I think the real question for us is, does the person acknowledge that they're broken? Do they acknowledge, is there some humility? Is there a willingness to say, hey, I, don't, I know I don't have it all right, but I'm willing to take a step out. And, and if not, then the question for us is, what are we doing with the privilege that we have, yeah. the right that we have? And I would go for so the responsibility that we have to leverage our lives to be better for the next generation, to leverage our lives for the people that are around us to make their lives better. And I know that you're feeling a deep sense of conviction with some religious affiliate, or excuse me, with political affiliation you have as you're reading scripture right now. And I would say, that's okay because what does Jesus tell us over and over and over again? You are not of this world. You are not of this world. Yeah. You're not of this world. So that doesn't mean you don't participate in this world. You just recognize it is what it is and, and you wanna make your life better but make the world of the life of people around you better. And you're going to do that through the way that you live, through the way that you vote. But you recognize that system's never going to do that. Only Jesus can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can make those things better, yeah. can better the hearts of people. And so when we recognize that, it takes a lot of the pressure off of that. Listen, most of the time there's a way for you to vote that gives you the ability to vote towards something that would empower what you think to be a kingdom value. The truth is, is that no system's really going to fully empower the kingdom value. Even church systems are broken. So I, I think it's important to keep those things in mind that, that um, we have so nationalized our religion, Christianity, that we now see it fully connected with our politics. Um, and I think it's important for us to take a step back and say, hey, listen, my, and I think you're doing this, Mark, but it's creating a tension. You're now separating the two and you're struggling with what to do when you separate them. And I think that's a good struggle to have um, because you're really recognizing that these things are not the same. And yeah. that what God wants to do in you isn't necessarily the same as what he's trying to do in somebody else. So, Yeah. Good job. First and foremost, we're citizens of heaven. Yeah. And um, it's gonna, there's going to always be that tension of things that are broken here. That's a great answer, Shane. I appreciate that. Um, so with that, we're going to end our study. And uh, 
our penultimate study. We have one more next week. Yeah. And we'll finish off the, the book of Acts next week. Um, but until then, just want to encourage you, uh, like I said at the, at the outset of tonight, if you are looking for updates about what's going on, how ministries are reopening, we're having conversations about those all the time, getting back into small groups, getting back into classes, uh, all the things that we love about being a part of the church body and growing together in Christ, um, head over to wallupdates.com, and those updates will be there on a regular basis. Um, and uh, before we, we uh, excuse you tonight, we want to close in prayer. Um, Father God, we thank you for, um, for your kingdom. As long as we're here on earth, we're just going to continually see the brokenness around us. And even within your church, we see things where we feel like we fall short, areas where we are still not there, areas where we look at the book of Acts and we say, surely by now we would have gotten this right. And it's not always the case. And so, Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your kingdom. May your kingdom come. May we see um, our worlds improved by your spirit in us affecting our, our culture, uh, affecting our, our politics, our political realm, our leaders, God, our families, our, our culture, how we see other races, God. May your life in us change everything for us, our perspective, and God, may your church in this time be the salt and light that it was meant to be so that we could really um, affect our culture, not just here in the United States, but around the world. God, I pray for each one as we're dealing with tensions and, and things that are hurting inside of us, things that are causing us to despair, things that are causing us to be frustrated. God, I pray that you just minister grace and strength and encouragement and hope to each one who's listening tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks again so much for being with us, and we look forward to seeing you this weekend. Uh, we're gonna continue the series we started this last week, and uh, I know it was a good message last week. We're looking forward to a great weekend this weekend. Um, so we'll see you uh, Saturday or Sunday. God bless you.